This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Betsy Rader, civil rights lawyer and Democratic nominee for Ohio's 14th Congressional District. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning the primary. Thank you so much. I appreciate you talking to me. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. So your district is considered pretty solidly Republican. It went to Trump over Clinton by 11 points. A Democrat hasn't won election to the House seat since 2000. And your incumbent, Dave Joyce, has won re-election twice with over 60% of the vote. How do you plan on winning this race? Well, I plan to win it by showing up. Dave Joyce won't hold a town hall. Uh, he won't listen to his constituents. And uh, and in fact, um, even if you look at the numbers, the statistics like the things that you cited, he actually um, has moved down in the ratings. None of the major prognosticators consider this to be a safe Republican seat anymore. For instance, it moved up in the CNN rating, uh, Sabato's Crystal Ball, the Cook Political Report. And um, in the first quarter of this year, I actually outraised him, even though I'm not taking any corporate PAC money. And he receives a huge amount of support from corporate PACs and uh, an organization affiliated with Mike Pence with grassroots support. I was able to even outraise him. And so it's a different dynamic now. Um, I've lived in the district for uh, almost 24 years now. I used to run the county's child advocacy program for abused children. I used to be senior counsel at the Cleveland Clinic, which is the largest employer in Northeast Ohio. Uh, very involved and embedded and committed to my community, and people know that. And so I think with the women's movement, with people being concerned about health care, uh, I think this is a very different atmosphere from what's existed in the past in the 14th District of Ohio. I think that's very true. Now, ever since Trump's victory in 2016, the Democratic Party has been torn about how to approach civil rights. On one hand, pundits say that Democrats should go right or to the center and ignore civil rights because they're quote-unquote divisive, while progressives argue that the party should support civil rights and not compromise on its values. You actually wrote about this very thing in the Washington Post last year, refuting this myth about the white working class. How does your background as a civil rights lawyer and someone born into poverty, as you wrote about, inform your thoughts on this? And how have you seen this dynamic play out in your race? I think that the American dream is defined by the concept of opportunity for all that's equal. That's what brought people to this country. That's what made this country great. It's what made it everybody's dream to be a part of this country was that you could come to this country. You could be born in this country in any, any, any socioeconomic class. 
And the only thing that stands in the way of your success is your own willingness to work hard. So equal opportunity, that speaks to the white working class. Equal opportunity speaks to people of color. Equal opportunity speaks to the LGBTQ community. And I think it's what America is all about. So I would never back away from that. As a matter of fact, it's what I talk about consistency. Um, is that what we need to be consistent about in this country is giving everyone a fair shot at success. So how do you approach this topic and the idea that people are just too lazy to be successful in your district? It's just not true. Um, And I can talk to the fact that I represent people all the time who were working real hard in jobs and took great pride in supporting their families And then they got fired. They got fired because they asked for their overtime pay. They got fired because they took time off to have a baby. They got fired just because they got older. And those aren't people who are lazy. Those aren't people who want to live off the system. They want to work. And I think anybody who's, you know, been around for even the past, what, 10 years who lived through the Great Recession and saw so many people lose their jobs and not be able to get reemployed or if they did get reemployed, It was in much lower paying jobs that didn't have benefits. You know, they know that it's not because people are lazy that they're struggling to get by. And what I've really published uh, several op-eds on and talk about a lot is the fact that if you look at the Medicare roles, if you look at the roles of people on SNAP, which is, you know, another word for food stamps, most of those people work. (laughs) They just work in jobs that don't pay much. In fact, what the taxpayers are doing is is subsidizing corporations who are paying people such a low wage that those people can't afford housing. They can't afford food. So what I really get from what you're saying is that we need to make the system work for the people and that's not happening right now. How do we change that? What policies can we implement on a federal level that would fix the problems that we have right now? Well, I think for one thing, um, a longstanding role of the government has been to make sure that people are paid a fair wage for a hard day's work. We have a minimum wage that has not been adjusted for inflation for the cost of living. And so we should raise the minimum wage. Another thing that we should do is provide for affordable, free public education so that people can get the skills they need to succeed in the workplace and earn a good living. We should have affordable, accessible health care because, you know, we all know if you don't have your health, uh, you can't get anything else in life. I actually had my spine uh, collapse onto the nurse to my right leg about 20 years ago. And I can tell you, if I couldn't have afforded the spinal fusion that I got, I wouldn't have even been able to raise my kids much less earn a living as an attorney. So as a civil rights lawyer, you have obviously done a lot of work defending civil rights. But as you write on your website, the laws in this country are not strong enough, not clear enough, and not enforced adequately. I think that's a really essential point because the American populace actually thinks that we're in a better place 
in terms of civil rights than we actually are. Most Americans believe that LGBTQ people already have federal protection, but that's not actually the case. Could you tell us about the state of civil rights in our country right now and what we need to change? Sure. And uh, boy, I could talk to you about that for a really long time. So let me start first with the enforcement of the laws that we do have. Um, and what happens a lot of time is people don't realize until they've experienced discrimination how difficult it is to actually enforce those rights. The civil rights agencies that you can file with are chronically understaffed and, and behind in their caseloads. And so getting any sort of enforcement and relief through them is very, very difficult if you try to go to an attorney to enforce those laws, uh, the problem is, is that if you're a minimum wage earner or, you know, otherwise just don't have, you know, say a six figure income, um, you probably you just lost your job. You're not going to have enough money to pay a lawyer on an hourly basis. So you need the lawyer to be able to work on what's called a contingency fee basis, where they get paid based on a portion of what you would recover if you won. The problem is, if you are not earning very much money, the amount that you can recover in a discrimination case is not that high uh, because your recovery is based on the amount of wages you lost and you're required to go out and try to find another job. So if you are not a high wage earner, if you're not like an executive at a company earning 100000 or more a year, it's going to be really hard for you to even find a lawyer who'd be willing to take that case. So how do you enforce your rights? That's one of the reasons I worked for eight years on the board of Cleveland Legal Aid, because legal aid provides free legal services to folks who can't afford a lawyer. Uh, but legal aid, you know, it doesn't have enough money to take nearly all the people who need protection in these civil sorts of cases. So that's, that's one end of it, the enforcement part. In terms of the actual legal protections, uh, one thing that's happened, of course, with the judges that are being appointed to the federal courts, they are appointing judges that are further and further screened in terms of uh, having certain political beliefs, certain beliefs about enforcing these civil rights laws. And so the court decisions coming down are making it harder and harder to really bring these cases and be successful. The other thing, as you said, is that people don't have the protections they think they have. For instance, many people think that they have a right to only be fired for just cause. They don't realize that you can be fired for really bad reasons, as long as it's not based on your race or your gender or your religion. Um, employers don't have to have just cause to fire you unless, for instance, you have a union contract. Um, and most people in this country don't have the protection of a union contract. And in terms, most especially, of LGBTQ rights, um, you may know from reading my website that both my sons are gay. And this is a topic that really motivated me to run for Congress. And we absolutely need a federal-based protection for people based upon sexual orientation, sexual identification, and right now, that's very state by state. And I remember the night that Donald Trump was elected, my sons called me and they said, what does this election mean for us? And I said, it means that it's going to matter very much which state you live in. 
because I predicted uh, that what has happened would happen. In fact, we are seeing um, their rights not be protected at a federal level. And we see things moving backward and frankly, moving backward at a pace that I had not even anticipated. And that's why I think this November election is very important because those are actions that we can take at the congressional level. We can amend Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to make sure that their rights are protected, or we can pass an entirely new law to make sure that everyone's rights in this country are protected from discrimination. Something that makes me think about is how to safeguard civil rights law from discriminatory uh, officials. We've seen this play out under the Trump administration very publicly, which has rolled back federal protections. How can Congress take action to foolproof civil rights from new administrations that aren't necessarily going to be trustworthy allies? Uh, I think that's a really important point you make. Um, And one thing I talk about is, you know, tone at the top. And so most fundamentally, we need to change our elected officials at the very top who are uh, running those administrations, because clearly that's what's happened here. The tone's been set at the top by President Trump, and then he has appointed people who share uh, that same point of view, and it's infecting the entire agency structure. Um, if, you know, if they are behaving in these ways, uh, again, it's, it's a matter of enforcing the law. And um, I think that our Congress people could be standing up. They could be having hearings on this. They could be calling people into account. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think has been incredibly disappointing to people throughout this country, Republicans, independents and Democrats, is that Congress is not holding this administration to account. Um, And we don't seem to have any heroes in this country who will really um, take them to task the way they should be with the many, many things that are happening, not just discrimination, but the corruption, the misuse of office. Uh, It's appalling. So I think we've seen an abuse of rights very visibly happening with the issue of immigration. What is your plan to protect the civil rights of immigrants and especially undocumented immigrants? Well, that situation with children at the border is, of course, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, And, you know, the statement that keeps rolling over and over in my head, and I actually forget which of them said it, Uh, was the statement, you know, that it didn't matter because they were going to be put in foster care or whatever. That just doesn't reflect the values of this country. I used to run a child advocacy program for abused children. I've, I've represented abused and neglected children and children that had to be separated from their parents for good reasons. Um, and even in those circumstances, of course, it's incredibly traumatic for children to be separated. And, you know, we just need a restoration of decency and compassion. Uh, That was, our our country was never founded on cruelty, and that's essentially torture. 
um, and almost goes, you know, really beyond civil rights um, to a form of abuse and torture to do that to children. Uh, so I think you know, that is a potential way of approaching it as human rights violations. In terms of undocumented workers, we actually just recently had um, a huge raid just this past week here um, in uh, Northwest Ohio, actually not in my district. And, you know, I think we've really seen, um, I don't have to tell you, a shift in priorities where they're not looking for people who are dangerous. Um, they're not focusing on people who um, put us at risk. They are just frightening people. Um, it's really a bullying tactic to have people live in fear and to appeal to people's most based instincts. And again, I don't think that's ever been the values of this country. And in fact, people like George W. Bush, um, you know, advocated for an immigration system that expressed compassion and logic and, um, you know, uh, was not just based on fear and hatred. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So in terms of process, our immigration system is rooted in court decisions, policies, and ideologies that started with the era of Chinese exclusion, the Chinese Exclusion Act. And that really speaks to America's dark history of racism and exclusion of non-white people. What are your thoughts on how the system has been rigged against people of color and what we can do to change that now? Well, I think we can take in that regard um, some hope from the court decisions that have come down over the past year um, in regard, for instance, to the Muslim ban. Um, and I have even uh, heard people talk about the fact that even in this, in the Masterpiece Baker case, that uh, the concurring opinion um, that Kagan uh, was a participant in where she discussed uh, religious discrimination and used that as a grounds for concurring in that opinion, that, you know, that could be laying a foundation for not allowing that type of discrimination in these immigration cases. And so, you know, while I worry 
that uh, the court appointments are making it, you know, maybe making it more and more difficult to enforce our Constitution and our laws in the way that's important to me as a civil rights lawyer. We have seen um, some good decisions in this area in the past year. Um, and so, I, you know, I would hope that we will have judges assigned to these cases and we will continue to see that our constitutional system uh, with our separate and independent judiciary um, may prevail and defend our constitution in this way and stop discrimination. So regarding the Masterpiece case, there's been a lot of confusion about what it really means. Conservatives have basically said that it legalizes anti-LGBTQ discrimination. Could you explain what exactly this decision means for the LGBTQ community? I think a lot of people are still very carefully evaluating that and parsing the decision. So I'll, I will comment, but I will preface it with the fact that uh, I've been busy running my congressional race and haven't uh, read the decision as carefully as a constitutional scholar would have. Um, but from what I have read is um, that it is very narrow and um, should really be very much just confined to the facts of that particular case, even to the extent that um, they really even narrowed it in their decision to when the decision took place. Um, if you read the decision, they talk about the fact that this was actually, I forget the exact year, but it was before um, Obergefell. It was before um, some other uh, laws had been passed that made really clear um, the, uh, the equal opportunities, the, the uh, requirement um, to treat uh, this gay couple uh, the same way as everyone else. And so I think it's super narrow uh, because what they also did was they limited it to the fact that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, they said, made what they considered to be anti-religious comments in the course of deciding whether or not the baker violated um, the couple's civil rights. Now, Sir, I, I do, so I think it really is narrow, and I don't think that it has the implications that some people on the right want to give to it. Does it upset me? Yes. I really wish it had come out differently, and I really worry that it, it's a difficult decision to parse through, even when you're a civil rights lawyer with a Yale Law degree. And so it's certainly alarming to me that many people will simply read the headline and see that, you know, the baker was, um, you know, found to be the winner here and the gay couple lost and the baker refused to sell them a cake. And I find that incredibly discouraging and concerning that it will be taken as an excuse to treat people like my sons uh, differently from everybody else. And, you know, what really one of the things that motivated me to run for office was the Trump administration's arguments in this case, where they went so far as to talk about the fact that a, a store could put a sign in the window saying that they weren't going to serve certain people. And uh, that's not what our country stands for. Um, and that's not what our Constitution stands for. And I don't think that's what the Masterpiece Baker decision stands for. I know that's not what it stands for. And so we just have to be very firm and making sure that people who want to 
you know, misinterpret it, uh, are not permitted to do that. So as you mentioned, there's this, the Trump administration said this means you can put no gays allowed on a window. It reminds me of the fact that under Donald Trump, anti-LGBTQ violence has spiked very significantly, and that's very concerning. What do you think we can do to change this tide of violence and ensure that LGBTQ people across the nation are safe? Well, most fundamentally uh, is what you and I are doing right now. Um, I'm running for office, and you're making sure that, that people are educated and realize uh, you know, who's running and how they can support them. Uh, we have to change um, who's in Congress. And in another few years, we have to change who's in the White House. Um, the, the leadership is setting, um, is setting this atmosphere of hatred and divisiveness. And, um, you know, it keeps me awake at night and it's what motivated me to run for Congress. And it's what motivates me to work with every fiber of my being, uh, to push back against this, you know, at the same time, um, you know, people, you know, it's just at a, a great, uh, pride festival. Uh, it's great to have people, uh, make their voices heard just like we did when we pushed back repeal of the ACA. Uh, I know it's exhausting because they're doing so many terrible things all at the same time. Um, and it's hard to keep up with it all. And it's hard to keep calling. It's hard to keep protesting. It's hard to keep donating to people. Um, but we just, we cannot lose our energy. Uh, we just can't let them wear us down. And so everybody needs to just keep making their voices heard on these issues. Lastly, where can folks find you online and how can they get involved in your campaign? Well, my website is BetsyRaderForCongress.com. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And it's um, at BetsyRaderOH. And um, what they can do is they can volunteer. There's a volunteer page. We're going to be getting out the vote here. In Northeast Ohio, that's going to help not just my race, but all of the statewide races like U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown. If we get out the votes here, because we actually have a really high Democratic index here in the 14th district, uh, your donations make a big difference. I uh, have been endorsed by N Citizens United. I'm not taking any corporate PAC money. And so $5, $10 donations, they add up. And I really appreciate all of them. So if folks can volunteer, if they can donate, and if they can be social media warriors and like and share things on social media to spread the word. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for all you're doing. Yes, of course. So again, I'm Jordan Valerie, politics editor at Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.